0: Section 24 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 1, Some Bird Notes, Part 6. An Old Poacher's Yarn If all the good things seen by naturalists were made a note of, and could be preserved and given to the public, what a vast addition to the store of general knowledge would accrue. The same may be said with regard to those whose occupations and hobbies bring them into contact with wildlife at various seasons of the year. However ignorant and unobservant a man may be, strange things and happenings Must appeal to him from time to time, and as a rule, those who spend much of their time in the open and the wild are men of keen observation. Only get into the confidence of such men, and they will astonish you by their knowledge of nature's ways and by their store of anecdotes. More is the pity that so much rich field lore dies with them. My chats with old Bradeners, as my small volumes will bear testimony to, show at once what, even in my own little sphere, would have been lost but for the little trouble I have taken from time to time in jotting down the narratives. Every naturalist, I boldly assert, should feel it his duty, as well as a pleasure, to place such interesting facts as he may meet with at least in black and white in his notebooks. It may be urged that when these men spin yarns they interweave with them much that is fabulous. That depends upon whom they yarn to. To a man who they feel is an honest one they will keep within the confines of truth if they imagine a man knows as much as they do, they will respect him and not try to astonish him. I make these remarks because I feel assured there is much native lore irretrievably lost with the demise of every gamekeeper, bird-catcher, molesnarer, wild-fowler and poacher, the last-named being not the least interesting, shrewd or observant. At his feet I would sooner sit at any hour of the day or night and listen to his experiences and deductions, than at the knee of his deadly rival, the more prosaic and matter-of-fact gamekeeper. The naturalist would do well to make friends of these outdoor rovers all, for there is always something to learn from, and usually much to interest and amuse in their tales and gossips. I do not profess to find anything exceptional in my old poacher friend's yarn, for I only happened with him casually in a little country town inn, where he, toned down by the Salvation Army methods to a fairly honourable, only a half pint occasionally, and law-abiding-under-the-circumstances sort of man, acted as Osler, Boots, Footman, Shopman and General Factotum. I was staying at A in March 1906, having just recovered from a severe illness. A is as dull and sleepy a little place as a Canadian backwoods village, and the only excitement I could find was in dropping into the inn parlour for an hour or so each day to gossip with the natives, and I a lifelong abstainer too. I had one or two interesting gossips with this Salvation Army poacher. Once, when tending sheep, he was suspicioned by a keeper who palled up to him on the road going home there was a fine cock pheasant strutting about in the road. "'Look here,' said the keeper, "'if you hit that old pheasant with a stone, you may have him. "'Now, if I hadn't a been a bit of a fool, "'I should a hulled awkward like, "'for I could chuck a stern about as straight as most folk "'and nearly hit that old pheasant in the head. "'And he war not the fast as I tried at. B. wished he'd gone wider of the mark, for the keeper ever after kept a sharp eye on him, although, as it happened, he was more than a match in cunning for Velveteens. That's the average poacher is a keen reader of men, resourceful, tactful, and learns marvellous self-restraint, goes almost without saying. One day, B., hit the road and ran foul of the village policeman, whom he accosted in a pleasant and perfectly easy manner, and the two walked together to the village in friendly converse. "'Hey, little thought-bore,' said B. I would got a long tail crammed into each pocket.' Speaking in the third person, he told me how two of them, "'were out poaching one night "'when they were disturbed by the keeper and the police "'and had to run for it. "'Finding themselves uncomfortably hemmed in, "'they made for a neglected pit of water, "'reedy and weed-surrounded, "'and quietly dropped into it, "'submerging themselves, all but their faces, "'having made for an overhanging clump of brambles "'into which they thrust up their heads. "'The keepers, although they declared they saw the poachers come that way, "'hunted long and carefully, and at length mightily chagrined, gave up the chase. "'He tersely ended the narrative by remarking, "'One man took a bad chill and died, the other didn't.' various dodges to outwit keepers and police practised by poachers single-handed, and by those who, did the thing, more largely and scientifically, were detailed, the bumbling of wheels with sacks, and encasing the pony's feet with others to deaden sound and confuse footprints and cart tracks, the decoying of keepers onto the wrong scents, and various other methods which form part of the poacher's creed, were all exceedingly interesting to listen to, even if they did not tend to edification. Passing a certain mansion, my friend remarked, pointing thither, Yow see that house? Well, old C lived there. He hated poachers like the blank." and dogs like poison, and could hardly sleep a night's for thinking of his precious game. No one does bring a dog through the village, but he must go after them, no matter who they was, and ax no ender questions what didn't concern him. Be careful, that's all, he'd say, and watch em go away. He was doused hard on poachers when they come up afore him and gave em all the Lord allow, and more if he dust. Two poachers owed him a grudge, one of them especially. So one night they must go and make a regular good haul, and they wanted him to know it, but it weren't safe hardly a course to write him aforehand. So afore they quits the grounds, they goes and sits for a rest on his doorstep. Hardly worth wassin time, axes Jay. Dunno, why? axes the other. S'pose we get a couple or three ready for tomorrow's dinner, says he, taking three or four out of the sack. Now, pluckin a long tail ain't particular hard work. "'nor yet a very noisy job. "'So they just plucks the two brass "'and spreads the feathers nicely round the doorstep "'and for Squire sees special edification next mornin'. "'How did he take it?' I asked, smiling. "'Well, Bort,' said he, "'don't axed. "'There was a pretty help to do, I can tell you.' He was just lost for woods. It is hardly necessary to narrate anything more desperate, but if I have made it plain to my reader that it is worth while to collect information from such hardy and interesting sons of nature, I have said sufficient Suffolk Turns and Fishes A ternery exists near Oldborough. On the shingly beach at Orford, a locality far less accessible, but equally suited to the nesting habits of the common tern and the little tern, as the marshes near Blakeney and Cly and Wells. I attempted to pay this spot a visit in 1896, but from sheer leg weariness gave it up after trudging four miles through yielding shingle and finding that there were at least four more to traverse before the spot could be reached. I saw terns in the distance, and noted the great similarity of the wind-polished stones, which were covered with the hypothalus of Lecidea petrea to those seen at Wales. Amongst these, the eggs of terns and ring-plovers, would be distinguished only with difficulty by an unpractised eye. I certainly expected to see far more birds than I did. A falling off in the take of smelts in the summer of 1906 was stupidly laid to the blame of the Orford Terns. The ignorant fisherman, whose honesty I much doubted, made complaint to the local authorities, and things began to look very black for the birds. In the Anglers News of September the 1st appeared the following paragraph. Seabirds and Smelt Since the Suffolk County Council has forbidden the taking of the common tern or its eggs, smelt fishing on the old, has been practically ruined. After a conference with the fishermen, Mr R. L. Everett MP is taking the matter up with a view to the removal of the restriction. Protests were made against this projected slaughter, and the following letter, which was printed in the Norwich Mercury of November 14th, is worthy of a place here turns in east suffolk at a meeting of the general purposes committee of the east suffolk county council on tuesday the following letter addressed to lord rendlesham by mr gp hope was read as a landowner in east suffolk I trust I may be allowed to protest against the assigned reason, as reported in the London papers, for rescinding the order protecting terns eggs by the East Suffolk County Council. I know as a fact the statement that there are 40,000 terns breeding on the Suffolk coast is a gross exaggeration. The highest estimate of terns on the Orford beach is 2,000. I put it less than half that number. I spent three weeks during the breeding season, chiefly up the river and on the North Weir, watching terns and photographing theirs and other nests. At the end, near Shingle Street, there were about 30 nests, and at the lighthouse end, there could not have been more than three times that number. The last time I really looked for nests was 19 years ago, and I was struck by the marked reduction in the number of nests and of birds, while if you go another 20 years back, the decrease is very much more evident. The food of the terns consists of shrimps and other small crustaceans, small fish chiefly the young of garfish or garbils, sand eels, young herrings etc. Many of them will even take dragonflies and water beetles. Possibly they may get a few smelts but as the female smelt is calculated to produce 36,000 young the damage done is not appreciable. I found five different kinds of terns. Sandwich, Arctic, Common and Little Tern, and saw two white-winged Black Terns. There were no Black Terns this year. Some of these, including the majority of the Little Terns, were feeding in the pools on the edge of the marshes, where it is unlikely they would find smelts. When the Terns were more numerous, there were many more smelts, and it is just as sensible to say that the terns have affected the smelt fishery as to say that they have driven the lobsters from the east coast or the mackerel from the Cornish coast, because they are scarce this year. Several people used to make a good thing out of tern's eggs, taking them and selling them for plover's eggs, and one is driven to the conclusion that there are other fish to fry than smelts. I trust it is not too late for the county council to reconsider their verdict and to allow the order to remain in force for another year, when I hope it is possible something may be done to allow the owner of the property to protect eggs on his own land. If people are allowed to take turns eggs, it follows they will not stop there, but take other wild birds' eggs, such as redshanks, ringed dotterel, rock pipit, wheat ears, etc. In fact, every bird nesting on the shingle. P.S. I may mention the breeding of the birds was very much affected by the cold winds and sharp frosts in June. It is possible the inclement weather may also have affected the fish. A large number of turns have now left the breeding ground and the neighbourhood. The committee decided to embrace the letter in their report to the council. I have no hesitation in suggesting that climatic and tidal influences were more accountable for the scarcity of smelts at their proper season. With quite as much justice might the fishermen complain that the turns were responsible for the early failure of the sprat fishery, for sprats up till November the sixth had not yet put in an appearance, nor had I seen a Suffolk sprat up till that date at Yarmouth, an unprecedented thing in my experience. On November the twenty-fourth. The following appeared in the Norwich Mercury: The East Coast Sprat Fishing. The sprat fishing on the East Coast is a failure, for reasons that no one appears able to fathom. Oldborough, the head of the industry, holds a yearly municipal feast, but it is doubtful whether this commemorative banquet can be held. One compensation is, however, found in the fact that the herrings have come further south and the old bra fishermen have managed to recoup themselves. It is suggested that the arrival of the herrings may be responsible for the disappearance of the Sprats. On this note, I commented in the Eastern Daily Press of November the 29th as follows. I must confess to experiencing a feeling of deep satisfaction when I read the other day in one of your contemporaries that the sprat fishing on the east coast is a failure for reasons that no one appears able to fathom, etc. Things looked a little better yesterday and Monday when a few tubs of sprats put in an appearance on the fish wharf But it is to be hoped that the more ignorant of the old Bra fishermen who laid the fault of the failure of the smelt-fishery to the innocent little terns have now made up their minds that the failure was due to reasons that no one appears able to fathom. I felt mightily indignant when all the hue and cry was raised by these said ignorant fishermen against the terns, and very nearly committed myself to pen and ink over it. But having further thought out the reason of the failure, it occurred to me at the time that the same reasons might affect the migratorial movements of Clupea spratus in like manner. So, notwithstanding the fact that my yearly November fries of luscious sprats this season have been conspicuous by their absence, I am, I honestly admit, delighted to find my hopes realised to a certain extent, for no prophet, for good or evil, likes to see his prophecies vain. Surely our old fisher folk ignorant folk and others do not lay the absence of sprats to the terns, and for the life of me I don't see how they could reasonably lay the absence of smelts to the same little birds. I have visited both Southwold and Oldborough and was struck by the fewness of terns, having been led to believe them much more numerous. I've watched terns, little black, common and arctic, times and often, and seen the Caspian and the Sandwich terns fishing also, and with the exception of the black terns, never saw them rise with anything else than herring sile, that is, young herrings, locally termed whitebait. I never once saw a smelt between their mandibles. While the terns are with us, Myriads of young herrings are usually flashing about near the surface of the sea. Immature smelts of the size they might like are found in our waters in winter-time, and large smelts the terns do not and cannot tackle. Let those old fishermen own up honestly.' and say that it was for the sake of the money the birds' skins and wings would fetch from some milliner's agent or agents, and not revenge for the supposed wrongs they inflicted on them. If not honest, be reasonable. I hope my note will fall into the hands of certain of those MPs and others, directly or indirectly interested.' who may on second thoughts form an opinion that it was always best to weigh a matter well more especially as affects the well-being of other creatures who have after all is said and done as much right to the herrings or smelts even as we have further may i point out that a sprat is a true species which spawns in march that young herrings are nothing but young herrings, and that there is no such species as whitebait, which is only a collective name for the young of shads, herrings and sprats, with a sprinkling now and again of blennies, gobies and sticklebacks, according to season and locality. Norfolk whitebait is none other than immature herrings. Further, that sardines are not a true species, but the young of the pilchard, except where dishonesty steps in, and sprats are manufactured into sardines. Finally, not being on the spot, I will not be dogmatic enough to say what I believe to have been the cause of these variations in the usually methodical movements of both smelts and sprats. I have an opinion, and in the many years I have delighted to study fishes and other creatures and their ways, I have always found that effects were preceded by definite causes except in the case of a man driving a wheelbarrow. But the causes affecting the fishes in question were such as are wholly unpreventable by man. Perhaps someone will venture an opinion before I presume to suggest my own. Yours truly, John Nolittle, Great Yarmouth. On December the 1st, I received the following interesting letter from an old naturalist friend. He wrote, Alton Broad, November the 29th, 1906 Dear Mr Patterson, I know nothing about sprats and less about herrings, but an experienced fisherman told me a month or so ago, that they would not get the big shoals of herrings in until the temperature of the sea fell to 32 degrees. I believe that the sea temperature during the last two months has been abnormally high, and I know that it did not fall to 49 degrees in Lowestoft Harbour until last Sunday now if you confer with our engineer at the ice factory south key they can show you a record of sea temperatures which i believe they have kept since we started ice making i make this suggestion to you because i believe the periodical migration of fish is more ruled by the temperature of the water than anything else and that some of the, at present, unsolved problems on this question will be materially forwarded by records of the variation of sea temperatures, which partly answers the question asked in the daily press. The Baltic emptying its waters and the Gulf Stream striking the land near Bergen make that the most rainy place in Europe and these waters forming uncertain eddies of hot and cold, I fancy account to a great extent to the uncertain migration of fishes and to their habits also. Signed, yours truly, W.S.E. And on December 15th, 1906, referring to the proposed interference with the old returns, J.G.T., Wrote me the following from Berry St. Edmunds There has been an agitation in East Suffolk to remove the prohibition of taking the eggs of the common turn on the ground that the birds do damage to the smelt fishery, which I consider absolute nonsense, and the real reason, in my opinion, is that people want to gather the eggs. I am told on very good authority that the sandwich tern bred on our Suffolk coast last season. My correspondent assures me he photographed a nest with one egg and had an old bird which had struck the wire. I saw one or two sandwich terns off Lowestoft, or rather Pakefield, last September, but these would no doubt be birds from the Farn Islands. I should not be surprised to hear of their breeding on the Norfolk coast. Short Notes from the Diary Birds In East Coast Notes, a series of short notes were inserted, which, although brief, were thought to be of interest. The following, some of them passed over at the time, have been considered sufficiently entertaining to find a place in the present volume others have been jotted down in the notebook more recently 1900 january a male teal came into my hands on the twenty-third which was already commencing to change its plumage between the eyes and the base of the beak the feathers had assumed a grey colour, with a few dark spots only showing. February During the very severe weather of December 1899, the field fairs seemed to be in no way inconvenienced, but a sharp spell setting in early this month killed many of them. A number were found dead in St George's Park. March the 28th Some rooks, very busy patrolling a marsh, grubbing out wireworms. They beat over the ground in so regular a manner that little remained unexamined. Manure was thrust aside, as adroitly as turnstones toss aside sea rack in order to see what lay hidden beneath. March the 28th a large flock of fully 2,000 starlings near the town. It is unusual to see such an assemblage so late in the season. Probably they were late hatched birds of the previous year. Query. Did they intend migrating eastwards? I have usually seen them both coming in and going away in small flocks of from 10 to 30. March the 29th. Bunches of starlings passing over the town, high up, in wedge form, going direct east, probably detachments from the flock of yesterday. May the 5th. I have several times noted the connection there appears to be between the advent of grey plovers and a spell of wind from the southeast. Several grey plovers on Braden today, noisily piping. Wind south South west How will it be tomorrow? May the 6th. Wind suddenly gone round to south-east, curiously coinciding with yesterday's arrival of grey plovers. May the 7th. Wind very puffy tonight, with squalls. May the sixteenth, two shovellers very busy on the zostera, picking HYDRABEA alve off the prostrate stems. Heron having caught a large eel, very much pestered by a pursuing flock of gulls, which harassed it a wing and afloat. Bitter northeast wind. May the twenty-fifth, several grey plovers on Braden. Wind south west. Wind changed to northeast next morning, and in afternoon to south-east. July the fifth, four Dunlins, adults with black breasts. Surely these were birds returning. I have seen young birds here on the seventh of July, as they breed freely in some of the more northern counties of England. This is not, perhaps, remarkable. September the 12th The landrail has been plentiful in the neighbourhood lately. I saw no less than eight on a poulterer's stall today. Mr J. H. Gurney wrote me on the 4th that nine corncrakes were put up in one barley field. October the 2nd I saw a pintail with remarkably rufous-tinted plumage, a coloration due probably to its frequenting water impregnated with oxide of iron. November the 29th Nine Egyptian geese on Braden on the 26th. Five were shot by one punt gunner, and two subsequently were killed by shoulder guns. Some were very fine, unpinioned birds. They were, without a shadow of a doubt, escapes. Their owner had only himself to blame for losing them. 1901 February Between Yarmouth and caster something like fifty dead puffins were found by a gunner named Quinton. Most of them were immature birds that is, birds of the previous year. May the 1st Some gulls had been feasting on the fins and other refuse thrown out after some roca, thornback rays, had been cleaned. I noticed that the spiny knobs, white and chalk light from the processes of digestion, were vomited. I have observed indigestible bones thrown up in the same way by sea-fowl. June the 26th Some very young herons feeding on Braden This is, I think, the earliest I have ever observed the birds of the year here. September the 22nd This month has been remarkable by the great number of siskins hide flycatchers and red starts occurring in the neighbourhood. October the 12th, very low tide today, walk to Ormsby by beach. The cross sand lying off this village was visible for a long distance, and for a mile of its length it was tenanted by an enormous flock of gulls, probably numbering 3,000 this was certainly a rare experience for the gulls october the 27th continuous flights of norwegian larks coming over wind southwest on this wind most of the migrants came in this year november the 16th wild afternoon november the 25th Twice lately have razorbills, wearied out by the rough weather and seas, been taken alive on the beach and brought to me. Do what I would, neither birds could be made to feed. Even throwing up again, pieces of fish forced down their throats. December the 18th Coots numerous on Braden. Also several redshanks there a rather unusual circumstance in winter. 1902 March the 13th Sparrows are a perfect pest in the St George's Park, having found something very much to their liking in the flowers of the yellow crocuses. Row after row have been destroyed, and the petals bestrew the soil. Next to the yellow, The white is favoured with their attentions. The purple variety they let pretty well alone. May the 12th With the old gunners there was a saying, 12th of May, Godwit Day. Gave some time to Braden today, but not a single Godwit rewarded my search. Tempora mutanta. Nos et mutamur in ILIS June the 2nd. Three turnstones. Exceedingly late birds on Braden. A still later oyster catcher there on June the 20th. June the 30th. Considerable number of greater black backed gulls on Braden. Been here some days and will no doubt remain all summer they are without question non-breeders october the 30th during the past week several shorelarks have been taken by bird catchers 1903 may the 6th two large flocks of ringed plovers on the mud flats one contained fully two hundred birds, the other three hundred. I was so interested watching them that a tremendous downfall of rain overtook me and forced me to row for shelter, which, fortunately, was not far to seek. July the 6th Thrushes and blackbirds this season have built in several town gardens and made themselves very much at home. I saw a blackbird's nest built in a flower pot, a most unusual procedure. The pot had fallen off a bedroom window sill and lodged in the fork of an apple tree. Three young birds, becoming well feathered and more than comfortably filling the rather small nest, PAID VERY LITTLE HEED TO MY INTRUSION, HAVING BECOME FAIRLY CONFIDENT WITH MY FRIEND'S CHILDREN, WHO DAILY CAME TO SEE THEM. JULY THE EIGHTEENTH THE YARMOUTH ROOK IS A DEPRAVED CREATURE. HE DELIGHTS IN CARRION, AND SEEKS IT FROM CHOICE WHEN CLEANER FOOD MIGHT BE OBTAINED. I SAW THIS EVENING THE RIBS OF A DECEASED DOG, bare and clean-picked, sticking out of a hole in a sack, which had been the poor animal's shroud. The rooks had just vacated their foul meal as I rode up to see the joint on which they were feasting. Query. Did they find this unclean thing by its scent, or were they so familiar with bags containing carrion that they knew what to find inside, as soon as a hole had been torn 1904 january the ninth on this date a paragraph appeared in the field relative to an avocet shot by a yarmouth gentleman at aldborough a few miles south of this town it is a most exceptional circumstance to find an avocet on the east coast in winter the bird has been preserved and is now in the town. July the 31st. Several kestrels flying about Braden Walls. One young bird, screaming noisily, made a dash at a meadow pipit when, just as he was within a very short distance of it, a swallow made a feint at him, baffling him on which he dashed at the Hirondine, which was, however, too quick for him. September the 24th A Lapland Bunting, Calcarius Laponicus, taken by a bird-catcher on the North Deans. 1905 April the 26th Nine land seen on the North Deans. May the 27th. The barn owl is a migratory species. I have seen it in autumn come in straight from sea in the daytime. In spring the species very rarely shows itself in the day. One, however, was observed yesterday flying across St George's Park when a swallow dashed at it and considerably upset it. The owl made a stoop at the swallow, which easily enough dodged it, but it continued to harass the owl until it had passed beyond its territory, when the unlucky bird of night was allowed to proceed on its way without further molestation. May the 31st. A water rail, in all probability migrating. "'struck some telegraph wires in the town "'and fell into a yard and was found by a cat, "'from which it was taken, sadly mutilated, by wire and claw. "'June the 15th. "'A nest of the ringed plover was discovered on the south beach, "'the eggs being hard set. Two days after, the spot was visited.' but the nest hole was empty. Mr. B. Dye, who used closely to watch the habits of nesting ring plovers, states that the earliest nest discovered was on April the 19th. The earliest hatching was noted on June the 1st. June the 24th A flock of about 150 young starlings congregated on the marshes a remarkably early bunching of this species. July the 6th About sixty jackdaws, young and old, searching for grubs on a burside marsh. Most of these were locally bred birds, at least a score having been hatched in the parish church steeple. September the 28th After continuous east winds, I went to the harbour-mouth, thinking that in all probability some unfortunate rock-birds might have been washed ashore. I saw one weary red-throated diver, at which some boys were throwing stones, swimming in a muddled fashion just outside the breakers, and found one dead razor and one guillemot among the debris of the tide-mark. I also found a Manx shearwater near the breakwater, but it was in too bedraggled a condition for preservation. It is rare here. October the 7th. Saw a young guillemot deliberately robbing the hooks of the sea anglers at the Galston breakwater. He tackled one hook too many, and greatly to his surprise was landed on the platform. October the fourteenth saw the first snow bunting of the season on Braden walls, feeding on the down covered seeds of the Michaelmas daisy, Aster tripolium. As it sprang up on my approach, two swallows darted at it. An incident which seemed to suggest dislike to the harbinger of approaching winter. As I walked home by the acle road. I passed a yellow wagtail, a rather late stayer. November the 15th There seems to have been a very pronounced movement of green woodpeckers. They have been plentiful of late. They are usually more in evidence here in November than at any other period of the year. November the 16th A male-bearded tit was shot at St. Olive's, where, with a companion, evidently a female, it was unexpectedly met with in a clump of reeds. This looks like a return visit to an old-time haunt of the species. November 18th Wild birds frequently live to a great age in captivity. A friend assures me that a linnet of his acquaintance has been caged eighteen years. Nineteen o six, January the twenty-seventh, a flock of snow buntings feeding on the rain-soaked seeds of the Chenopodium album growing on top the walls near my houseboat. February the seventh. Some stacks of hay have been overhauled on the south town marshes, much to the delight of bramblings, which have visited the spot in some numbers for the sake of the numerous seeds of weeds exposed to view. February the twenty third saw a concourse of hooded crows on the south beach. I found their centre of attraction was the carcass of a dead terrier dog. The eyes had been extracted and the tongue the daintiest portions and the fur was stripped off one side as clean as feathers off a plucked chicken. March the 31st A movement of water rails has taken place. One brought to me that had been picked up exhausted out of the river. Another was recently killed on the North Deans by striking a telegraph wire may the 12th went for my usual 12th of may braid and tour, but did not meet with or hear of a solitary godwit july the ninth yellow wagtails abundant on some ling clad hills high above the st olive's marshes insects were extremely numerous but not more so, perhaps, than on the lowlands. It occurred to me that this wagtail may be locally changing its habitat, for it is by no means so numerous as formerly on the marshes around Yarmouth. July the 14th Saw the crane at Lowndes, which was shot after two or three days' solitary ramble on the Caister sand dunes in May. What forbearance and self-restraint local gunners must have exercised to allow it to remain unmolested so long, even as that. October the 10th Extraordinary numbers of larks arrive today, coming in just before and until after day dawn. October the 27th The first lot of snow buntings, Frequenting the South Deans. November the 5th, a skewer very busy chasing the gulls of Galston Pier. Species undeterminable, probably a Richardsons. November the 21st, very unsettled weather, probably a gale northward. Yesterday, lapwings pouring in, in wing-weary flocks, seemingly scarcely able to land. With them came over wood-pigeons, larks, field fairs, etc. End of section 24